In January of this year, Bryce Waller asked to have lunch with me. And he told me about an exciting ministry opportunity that he wanted to pursue. And even though I was sad to lose Bryce, I always knew that his time with us would be short. And it was a great privilege for me just this last weekend to be with him, to install him in his new church in Bogota, Colombia. The session formed a search committee shortly after, and we determined to find and hire a new assistant pastor. And as we began that search, we thought, you know what? The Lord has been faithful to us over the last year. We've seen many new people come into the church. There has been an influx in giving. We feel like something is about to happen at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Can we stretch? Can we believe God to maybe push forward and instead of finding one pastor to replace Bryce, might we think about two men? Would God be so good to us to bring two men to Redeemer Presbyterian Church? We decided to call these men as assistant pastors, which means that the session is the one who is calling them rather than the congregation creating a search committee, partly because I didn't want to be without help uh, as long as it would take for a a search committee to be uh, uh, formed. We ended up with 15 applicants from around the nation and from several different denominations. I probably talked with 20 to 30 guys who were interested, but 15 eventually applied. Our committee, however, knew fairly quickly uh, that John and Danny were our top choices. Before we brought them here for their visits, I went to Michigan and to California to sit with them and their families, to hear their stories, to talk about their relationship with Christ, their ministry opportunities, and visited them in their own homes, and then they came to Austin for their in-person visits, and we all sensed that God was leading us to link arms together in the ministry that he had called us to here. In August, the Presbytery approved uh, John's call, and just yesterday, uh, the Presbytery approved Danny's call, and they empowered our session to install these men tonight. So John and Danny, will you please come forward? Are you now willing to take charge of this congregation as their assistant pastors, agreeable to your declaration in accepting its call? Do you? I do. Do you conscientiously believe and declare, as far as you know your own heart, that in taking upon you this charge, you are influenced by a sincere desire to promote the glory of God and the good of the church? Do you? I do. Do you solemnly promise that by the assistance of the grace of God, you will endeavor faithfully to discharge all the duties of a pastor to this congregation, and you will be careful to maintain a deportment in all respects, becoming a minister of the gospel of Christ, agreeable to your ordination engagements? Do you? I do. I do. 
Will the session of Redeemer Presbyterian Church please stand? When we call assistant pastors, it's the session that makes a vow to their pastors rather than the congregation. Do you, the session of this congregation, continue to profess your readiness to receive John and Danny? We do. Do you promise to receive the word of truth from their mouths with meekness and love? Do you promise to encourage them in their labors and to assist their endeavors for your instruction and spiritual edification? Do Do you engage to continue to them while they are your pastors, that competent worldly maintenance which you have promised, and to furnish with them whatever you may see needful for the honor of religion and for the among you? Let's pray together. Brothers, I know that you've already been ordained, but for the assistance of the men to lay hands on you, would you please kneel? Here, put that underneath you. you. Otherwise, you may not get up. (laughs) Brethren, let's pray together. O Lord, you've established the office of pastor within your church. And we therefore pray for your solemn blessing upon John and Danny as they are installed as pastors of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Help them to be tender-hearted shepherds who are serious about feeding the flock through their sermons and their lessons and their conversations and their hospitality and especially by their godly example. May no one amongst us despise their youth, but instead show them due respect and honor as those who serve the Lord. Please help them to be loving shepherds who seek after the lost, who bring back those who wander away, who bind up the injured, and who strengthen the weak. We pray that they will endeavor after holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Help them to watch over the flock, exercising oversight, not domineering over those in their charge, but humbly serving the sheep, knowing that one day they will give an account to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, we ask your favor and blessing upon their wives and children. We pray for a long season of fruitful ministry amongst us for both men, and we pray all of this by faith. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. I now pronounce and declare that John Hur and Danny Morgan have been installed as assistant pastors of this congregation. Agreeable to the word of God and according to the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as such they are entitled to all support, encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. We give you the right hand of fellowship to take part in this ministry with us. Thank you, brother. Will you please stand?
Our sermon text this evening comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this evening of celebration where we see the tangible evidence that you are building your church. Lord, use us, despite our frailty, despite our fallenness, to lead men, women, and children into the kingdom of God. And may we see that kingdom grow is a great tree that covers eventually all the earth, bringing everyone into its shade and nourishment. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In services like these, we are instructed by our Book of Church order to give a charge. A charge to the new deacons, elders, and pastors, as well as to the congregation and to the session who calls them. If you look up the definition of charge in the dictionary, it says this. A charge is a solemn exhortation to persevere in the discharge of one's duties. Solemn exhortation to persevere in the discharge of one's duties. And so normally, when we think about an exhortation, we go and we find an imperative, a passage in the Bible that tells us to do something. So passages like 1 Timothy 4, Paul urges Timothy to be faithful to the work that God has called him to, or Hebrews chapter 13, some of you remember just a few weeks ago, where the congregation is urged to, be, uh, to submit to their leaders. Or There are many passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament that talk about our duties one to the other. But there's a different definition of charge that I think is also appropriate for us to remember. In fact, it's probably the definition of charge that you use every day. You plug in your phones. You charge your phones. You fill them up with power. So tonight, as we ordain and install new deacons, new elders, and new pastors, I want to remind us all that the power to grow the church, the power 
to be effective in ministry, the power to see God advance and the kingdom of God advance. It doesn't lie within ourselves. And the actual results, they're not even up to us. Instead, they are part of the work and the promise of Christ for his church. If we forget that, if we think in some way that we are responsible for these things, we're going to fall into one of two errors. One is that we will plunge into a furious pace of busyness. And I admit that this is the error that I am most prone to. Jack Smith came and stopped at the office the other day and says, Brother, I don't think you can sustain this pace. And I need to hear that as the word of God from Jack Smith. I will think that it is by my much doing that the church will grow and be established. Or, if we don't fall into a furious pace of busyness, we will fall into a quietist approach. Quietist approach that kind of passively waits. Almost John 5 waiting for the angel to come and stir the waters of Bethesda before we rouse ourselves to do anything at all. Scripture doesn't give us that choice. It doesn't give us a choice between a mad dash of reckless work or a passive waiting. God's Word charges deacons and elders and pastors and churches with a hard work, with a difficult work. But friends, what I want you to see tonight is it's not just an exhortation, a law under which we labor. The Bible's charge also includes a promise of power, power to be who God promised us to be, and what God has called us to be. And one of the best places to find that charge is in Jesus' final words to his disciples found here in Acts chapter 1. I want us to focus tonight on Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read it for us again. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, where do we see that power demonstrated? Well, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that you can just turn the page. You can turn the page to Acts chapter 2, and you will see it demonstrated on the day of Pentecost, first in that physical phenomena of the presence of the Holy Spirit as tongues of fire settled over the heads of those original disciples. But then you can see that power demonstrated in the preaching of Peter in the streets of Jerusalem as they spill out into the streets because the crowd is amazed. They try to figure out what's actually happening there. 
A large number of people respond in faith to Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 tells us that more than 3,000 souls were added to a church of just 120 people in one day. And don't we long to see that kind of power? Don't we long to see that power exercised at Redeemer and in the other churches here in Austin? And so, one natural question would be, okay, well, how do we package that power? How do we parcel out that power? How do we control that power so that we can use it for God's glory and for our good? And that would be amazing. But that's not the way the power works. The power that Jesus promises isn't a substance. Instead, having been given the Holy Spirit by the resurrected and ascended Jesus, you and I share in this power because His power is His presence. And that means that that power, it can't wax or wane. Friends, Jesus did not fill up the disciples' magic account. He didn't fill it up with divine power that would eventually drag down until Jesus would have to come back and plug in a couple more coins to fill them up again. Instead, He promised that He would be present with them through the person and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason that the power can't grow or can't diminish. The power is always constant. The power is always effective. The power always accomplishes its purpose. I confess, however, there are times in my own ministry when I think that the power has worn off. After a hard day, after a difficult week, or a hard season of ministry, I wonder if perhaps a fresh infusion of power is necessary. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever wondered if maybe you need something more than what you have right now? I think all of us had felt that, fr- that sort of frustration. Maybe we don't seem to be growing in the way that we think we should. We're not as interested in the things of the Lord as we used to be. Our, our focus seems to be off, or maybe even those sins that we thought we had retired long ago come roaring back into our lives. Friends, when we are faced with this kind of situation, when we believe that a fresh infusion of power is necessary, it usually means that we have forgotten something. It usually means that we have forgotten that the power of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. And so rather than casting about trying to find some way to fill us up with power, the answer is simply to realign our thinking so that we remember why Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church. 
Tonight, as we end, I want to briefly tell you the three reasons why Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church, what the Holy Spirit is intended to accomplish through our work as a congregation, through the calling of our new deacons and elders and pastors. First, the presence of the Holy Spirit, it actually ushers in the last days. Remember that Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel. He says that the last days have dawned because the Spirit has been poured out. You've probably known this when our study in Acts chapter 2 several years ago and Sunday nights, but the last days in Israel's mind, were a time when God would finally do everything that He had promised to do. It was a time that the people of God would finally serve God with wholeheartedness. It was a time that God would bring about vindication and judgment. You and I as 21st century Americans, North Americans, we make a mistake To read Peter's sermon and figure that the last days are all about the end of human history. We read Acts chapter 2 with Hal Lindsey in mind, rather than the prophet Joel in mind. Friends, the last days are all about the advent of God's kingdom in our midst. The advent of God's kingdom through the power and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that our deacons and our elders and our pastors, they are agents of the Holy Spirit's last day's work. And that means that Redeemer Presbyterian Church is an outpost of the kingdom to come. It's a place where heaven and earth meet. It's an opportunity for the nations of the earth to experience the great salvation that God has promised to him. And I'm going to tell you that this is a radically different idea than most of the people coming through the doors of this church are ever going to have. A lot of people who come in on Sunday mornings, they treat church as if it was their kind of weekly homeroom. They come here to get the announcements. They come here to be equipped to battle the secular foes. They come here to receive helpful tips for living. But brothers who have been called as deacons and elders and pastors, part of your job, part of your calling is to remind Christ's church, to remind everyone who comes through these doors that this gathering is a harbinger of the last days. This gathering is a fulfillment of prophecy. This gathering is a picture of Israel's great hope in God's faithfulness. Now that vision for the church, it might be different than what people around us are expecting, but it's also surprisingly meaningful for people who live a modern nightmare. I don't know about you, but in my family and in 
many other families, many other people I know, we are bouncing from one task to the other. Constantly trying to find time to fit things into our schedule. Hoping that we will find meaning and purpose to the things that fill up our Google calendars. That's why when people come through these doors, we don't ask them to spend 40 days searching for their purpose. We don't ask them to discover the secret of their best life now. We invite them to converse with God. And we tell them that each of their individual stories is part of a much larger canvas, a story of redemption that God is working out in our midst. Something is happening here that doesn't happen in the rest of the world. That's the first thing that the Holy Spirit does. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does is He brings together people from different backgrounds and from different beliefs and from different heritages, and He weaves them together as one people of God. You see, the wonder of the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost wasn't just that people could speak languages that they didn't know. That would have been a cool party trick. But that wasn't the real miracle. The real miracle was that the nations who had gathered together in Jerusalem for that holiday, they heard in their own languages all of the marvelous things that God had done for them. Friends, I like many of you, think that the supernatural gift of tongues, I think that it ceased when the apostles and the prophets laid the foundations of the church. But I am confident that the Holy Spirit continues to draw people together. That the Holy Spirit continues to testify about the great things that God has done through the local church. You and I may not speak in tongues, but friends, we speak the language of the baptized. We speak a language that is different than what you can find in the public square. We speak language, we speak words of forgiveness. We speak words of mercy. We speak words of grace. And those are foreign tongues in a culture that is bound up by anger and self-righteousness and revenge. But it's words of mercy. It's words of grace. It's words of forgiveness that actually draw people together. People who are at odds with one another and people who are at odds with God. These are the words that transfer them from the babble of their own making to the unity of the body of Christ. Friends, those who come here, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they have been, our prayer is that they will be drawn together to glorify God for the great things that He has done. That means that we don't gather here as a political party. That means that we don't gather here to discuss educational philosophy. 
That means that we don't gather here even to debate great moral dilemmas in our culture. We gather to bear witness to the great deeds of God by which he has accomplished everything he requires in order for sinners to be reconciled to him. Friends, the third thing that the Holy Spirit does is he points the focus, the spotlight, on the work and the person of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit enabled the early church the followers of Jesus in that difficult age to bear witness to his saving power. Initially, they did it there on the day of Pentecost by tongues that they had not learned. Later, they continued on and bore witness to Jesus in their own language. They continued by deeds of mercy and compassion as they provided for one another's needs. In fact, if you continue on in the book of Acts in these early chapters, you can see that this Spirit-empowered group is filled with the Holy Spirit. And they constantly are, are ministering to one another and to the nations around them. And there are exciting things happening within this group. Signs and wonders that maybe you and I look at and go, gosh, if only we had that here at Redeemer. If only that was part of our identity as a church, then the city of Austin would really pay attention to what was happening here. And yet, each of those signs, each of those wonders, they didn't exist in and of themselves. They, they weren't for its own benefit. They were bright, red, bold arrows pointing to the Messiah who had taken his throne, who was extending his rule and his reign on earth through the Holy Spirit. And friends, that means that every church that is animated by that same Spirit will become itself an object lesson of God's work in the world. When the Holy Spirit is active in our midst, we shouldn't long for great miracles or great signs and wonders. When the Holy Spirit is active in our midst, what we should long for, what we should expect is that you and I will bear witness to Jesus Christ. That we will point to His great work. That we will bring outsiders and insiders close to Jesus not only those who know their own need, but to those who need to know their need. Friends, the charge to deacons and to elders and to pastors beginning their ministry isn't so much what you must now do in order to fulfill the ministry that God has called you to. In fact, if you have to do anything, it's this. Remember that God the Spirit is with you. Remember that He was sent by the Son Himself to do for us what is humanly impossible. And by sharing in His power, by bearing witness to His power in our midst, our hearts will be transformed 
And our ministry will be effective in ways that no other power can promise. And so my prayer tonight is that all of us would find our hope and our satisfaction in the Holy Spirit, who by His powerful presence enlivens us and equips us and confirms us in the grace and mercy and peace of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, as we bring these brothers into ministry with us, as we acknowledge their calling or your calling on their lives, we pray that you would equip us and that you would fill us with the same spirit and work in the day of Jerusalem or in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Father, we pray that that same spirit would be at work in us and through us. Father, protect us from seeking out power from other sources. Austin is a city filled with power, political power, educational power, cultural power, entertaining power. And each of those can be a bright, shiny thing that distracts our attention and attracts us and maybe even leads us to grab for it rather than relying on you. So Lord, may this be a church and may these men be servants who find their grounding and their power in the work of Jesus for them and the work of the Holy Spirit in them. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.